0: In this episode of the Fine Art Photography Podcast, all about the historic tintype process. Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of the Fine Art Photography Podcast. In this episode, a continuation of our occasional series about historic photographic processes. In this episode, the tintype. These episodes are intended as a resource for students and as a backgrounder for collectors. Previously, we've had several episodes about the daguerreotype process, and we made a deep dive into the albumen print process, even using contemporaneous sources to describe how to make albumen paper. Be sure to check those out if you haven't heard them already. The tintype, as it was popularly called in its era, was also known as the ferrotype and the melano type. This process was first defined in France in 1853 by Adolphe Alexandre Martin. It was patented in the U.S. and in the U.K. in 1856, and even though it's considered a historical process, tintypes are still being made today as a niche. A tintype is a direct-original print made on a very thin and typically quite small sheet of iron, not actually tin, hence the other name, ferrotype. A direct-original means that the print is made directly onto the final piece of metal with no intermediate negative. Ambrotypes were popular prior to tintypes, and that was a process with the photograph made onto a sheet of glass, then backed with black backing to reveal the silvery image on the backside of the glass. If held in the original case behind a sheet of glass, a tintype can sometimes be very difficult to tell from an ambrotype. While beautiful, ambrotypes obviously having been made on glass were quite fragile, where tintypes have proven to be very durable over the generations. Many more tintypes exist today than ambrotypes, and they can be found in antique shops for a bargain. I recently purchased a handful of beautiful 1870s and 1880s tintypes for $8 each. They're all portraits, and that's what you'll find. Photography in those days was primarily a portrait business. The rise of affordable and comparatively easy tintypes timed perfectly with the American Civil War. Families wanted portraits of their boys who were going off to war and soldiers wanted pictures of their wives or girlfriends to carry in their pocket as they marched off to battle. Because they were durable, many of our most important surviving photographs from that era are Tintypes. In fact, the most famous photograph of Billy the Kid, which was until recently also the only known photograph of him, is a Tintype. And what I think is cool about Tintypes is since they were portraits and were a unique original, More than likely, they were held in the hand of the subject. In other words, Billy the Kid held that portrait in his own hands. That's almost certainly true of all tintypes. At some point, the person in the photograph also held that very same photo in their hands. I think that's a pretty cool direct connection to the past. Even though considered less detailed and beautiful than older and more complex daguerreotype process, to me, tintypes are still quite stunning. I've made high resolution scans of tintype portraits no larger than a business card, and I'm stunned by the amount of detail and clarity that's captured in those small images. Now, I said a tintype is a unique original, N- no intermediate negatives are involved, meaning that it will be the only one, a one of a kind. That's not exactly true. Thanks to an ingenious development in 1858, the gem ferrotype was born. Starting in 1858, Gem ferrotypes allowed creation of multiple small duplicates on a single sheet of larger metal thanks to the invention of a multiple lens camera. The sitter was projected multiple times in one single exposure. This would then be cut down to provide a set of small duplicates very affordably. Gem ferrotypes were about the size of a postage stamp. They were popular in lockets and brooches, but they were also sold in small paper inserts that acted as a decorative mat. These are useful today for identifying the photographer because sometimes they had the photographer's information printed on the back. Although one article I read claimed that fewer than 20% of photographers actually published their names on the cards. Some tin types were also sold in decorative frames like those used for ambrotypes and daguerreotypes. One article said that loose gem ferotypes were sold for $0.10 cents a dozen. Gems sold in paper mats were $0.50 cents a dozen and framed photographs would have been more. I recently disassembled the case from a dusty old tintype in my collection to clean the glass, and I discovered on the paper backing behind the photograph, inside the case, written in pencil, was the price $1. I can only assume that that was the cost of the case. Tintypes sold for prices averaging from anywhere from $0.25 to $2.50 in the United States, but some photographers charged as much as $20 for a six-plate portrait. According to an article I read on the Library of Congress, Cased images typically included the image plate and a cover glass wrapped together in a brass mat placed inside of a leather or thermoplastic case. Tin types were quite often hand-tinted, with the photographer carefully applying a blush of red to the sitter's cheeks. This was done to both men and women, and the most bizarre use of this that I ever saw was on a death photo made of the Civil War guerrilla fighter Bloody Bill Anderson. After his death, in a bloody gunfight with Union troops in Missouri, he was propped up on a board and photographed, clutching his pistol, eyes closed, with a grisly, grimacing smile on his face. For some inexplicable reason, the photographer added a rosy tint to the cheeks of a corpse and also colored some flower patterns on his shirt. Ten types were sold in sizes related to the size of the metal plate. According to the Library of Congress, the common plate sizes were as follows. Imperial or mammoth plate is larger than six and a half by eight and a half inches. A whole plate was six and a half by eight and a half inches. A half plate was four and a quarter by five and a half inches. A quarter plate was three and a quarter by four and a quarter inches. A sixth plate, 2.75 inches by three and a quarter inches. A ninth plate, two inches by two and a half inches. A sixteenth plate, one and a half by 1.75 inches. And a gem ferro type was usually between three quarters and one inch wide by one and a half inches tall. To see some of my own types that I have in my collection, you can go to an article on my blog at iCatchShadows.com where I'll have a lot of high-resolution photographs. I'll include a link in the write-up or just search tintype. Okay, so we've discussed a little bit about tintypes, so now let's get into the process. How were tintypes made? I'll be offering only a high-level description of the process to give you an idea of what's involved. This is by no means meant to be a true guide to making tintypes. I used as a reference a great article from Masterclass, and I'll include that link in the write-up as well. Tintype is a wet collodion process, which, instead of imaging a glass negative, the photograph was exposed onto a thin sheet of black lacquered iron. Just as with ambrotypes, the finished photographic image would be light against a dark background on the black lacquer. The wet collodion emulsion would be applied to the plate, which was then inserted into a dark slide, which was then slipped into the back of the camera. Exposure was made while still wet, and then immediately returned to the darkroom for development. Development is halted with a bath of water, and then the image is fixed. In the old days, fixing was done with a very toxic chemical called potassium cyanide. But modern tintype artists use sodium thiosulfate, which is the same thing that we use for fixers for all kinds of photographic processes. After drying, the final tintype was then sealed with a coat of varnish. I have an old tintype in my collection with huge runny drips of varnish dried onto the back of the plate. Okay, now here's the mind-bending part about the process for me. When you expose a tin type, you're actually making a negative, just like the glass plate negatives made in the wet plate collodion process. It's the same process. But for tin types, the negative is severely underexposed. That means that the darker areas of the negative are transparent and allow the dark part of the black lacquer to show through. The lighter parts of the negative are so light as to appear as highlights against the black lacquer. Overall, tintypes are more gray in the highlights than other types of photographs, but it's a part of their distinctive appearance. Another thing to realize is that like all direct plate images, most tintypes are backwards or reversed. I said that most because there were some cameras that used a mirror to correct the reversal problem. Now, in a 2012 video on Adam Savage's tested channel on YouTube, Michael Schindler of Photobooth SF said that types are blue sensitive and also that they are extremely slow. Whereas a sheet of modern film might have an ISO of 100 or 400, a type is more in the range of ISO less than one, maybe ISO 0.75 according to Schindler. In that video Schindler demonstrated his process, first pouring the collodion onto a blackened plate. Now he happens to use four by five sheets of aluminum that he gets from a trophy supply house. You know, the kind where your name gets engraved for winning at golf or softball or whatever. Anyways, he pours the collodion which is liquid nitrocellulose containing two salts, cadmium bromide and ammonium iodide. Then he dunks the plate into a sensitizing tank of silver nitrate where the salts react and formulate the light sensitive emulsion on the surface of the plate. That takes about four minutes in the bath. After four minutes in the sensitizing bath, Schindler placed the wet plate into a modified 4x5 dark slide that was designed to hold sheet film. He altered that slide to make it work for metal plates. The dark slide is then placed into the back of the camera where the sitter is flashed under a very bright light and then the dark slide returned to the dark room for immediate development. Schindler held the plate in his hand while pouring the developer directly onto the exposed surface, just as he did with the collodion earlier, but I've also seen others simply drop the exposed plate into a tray of developer. Development occurs very quickly, within a few seconds. The plate is rinsed in water to stop development, and at this point, the plate is no longer light-sensitive and it can be examined under room light. Schindler's sample plate in the video looked peculiar because it hadn't been fixed yet, and the fixing process helps transform the tintype into its final appearance by removing all the undeveloped silver salts. Then the plate is allowed to dry, and while Schindler didn't mention varnish, in the old days, tintypes were often varnished as a finishing process. By the way, as I said before, that video was made in 2012, and back in those days, you could walk into Schindler's studio in San Francisco and in 20 minutes walk away with a -a one-of-a-kind, 4x5 tint-type portrait of yourself for $60. What a deal. Unfortunately, Photo Booth SF closed in 2014. Contemporary photographer Victoria Will is well known for her tintype portraits of celebrities. She published a book of those portraits called Born Back on the Peanut Books imprint. Now, I'm not a big fan of celebrity portraits myself, but the tintype process does make compelling portraits of attractive people who certainly know how to own a camera lens, if you know what I mean. I think the thing that makes tintypes and other wet plate collodion processes so interesting is the unpredictable nature of the outcome. In a digital world, the process retains a feeling of unpredictability. The antique lenses are sharp on the eyes and fall rapidly out of focus for the rest of the image. The uneven, swirly edges add an artistic sensibility. Tintypes are just slightly beyond the control of the photographer. And, of course, each photograph is a rare, one-of-a-kind individual print, uh, gems excluded, of course. And that makes them special and rare. And in the age of the endless perfect digital reproduction, that's worth something. When I look at the 145-year-old tintype type portraits in my collection, I realize this may be the only existing image from that person's entire life. Well, that's all I've got for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you again real soon.